The last book in the Old Testament, just before the book of Matthew, chapter 1. This is our third message now on this book. It'll take us through the end of the year to complete the book. Let me do a little review since the first message was before Missions Week and then the second last week. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 5, we focused on the electing love of God and its greatness. And then in verse 6, last week of chapter 1, we focused on the majesty of God's fatherhood and its greatness. And today I want us to focus on another dimension of these verses in 6 to 14 of chapter 1. Namely, the curse of careless worship. To bring this into our attention, let's read verse 8 and verses 13 and 14. The Lord says in verse 8, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that no evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that no evil? Then drop down to verse 13. What a weariness this is, you say, and you sniff at me, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. So I think... With those few verses, you can see what the problem is in in this passage. The priests, and no doubt reflecting the spirit of the people as well, are offering stolen animals, mangy animals, broken-legged animals on God's altar. They are careless in their worship. God goes so far as to say in verse 14, they are cursed. Cursed be the cheat who sacrifices to the Lord what is a blemish. And that's where I get the title for the message, The Curse of Careless Worship. Now, what I want to do this morning, in the few minutes we have before we go to the table together, is talk about the origin of careless worship, the essence of careless worship, and the opposite of careless worship. First, the origin of careless worship. Malachi leaves us in no doubt as to what he believes the origin of this problem is. And I'll put it like this. The origin of careless worship is the failure to feel the greatness of God. The failure to feel the greatness of God. Now, he shows us this from the text in two ways. In the first place, He focuses our attention or the attention of this careless priesthood on the greatness of God's electing love and the greatness of God's majestic fatherhood. Let's do a little review here. You remember that the very first thing God says to this careless people in verse 2 was, I have loved you, says the Lord. And then they respond carelessly. How hast thou loved us? And God does not say, I have cared for you. I have forgiven you. I have been patient with you. Now, that's true, but that's not what he called attention to for a a careless people. 
Rather, he speaks very ominous, shocking, stunning words in answer to that question, how hast thou loved us? And he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, says the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. In other words, we saw several weeks ago, my love is an electing love. I chose Jacob, not Esau. I have chosen Israel, not Edom. My love is an electing love. And then he goes on to say, and my electing love is free and unconditioned. And he brings that out by saying, is not Esau Jacob's brother? Which means, didn't Esau have just as much claim on my electing love as you did, Jacob, Israel? The answer is a clear yes. And therefore he's saying, and therefore my love for you, what is it? It's free. You didn't earn it. No distinction that you had merited it. I set my favor upon you in sovereign, gracious love and not Esau. In other words, when you address a careless people and you tell them, I love you. And they say, how have you loved us? God chooses to say, my love for you is great and sovereign and powerful. In other words, you stun people in that attitude. You shock them. You wake them up. And then we saw last week, he did exactly the same thing with his fatherhood. Notice in verse 6, he did not say, if I am a father, where's my affection? He said, if I am a father, where is my honor? Now, he could have said, where is my affection? Because he is a pitying and affectionate father. But he didn't say that. When you're speaking with a careless people who are playing fast and loose with the offering of Jehovah, you say, if I am a father, where is my honor? In other words, you call attention to that dimension of fatherhood, which is great Majestic. So you see, he's done the same thing with his love in in verse 2 and his fatherhood in verse 6. When you speak to a careless people, you magnify greatness. Greatness, in particular, is what is needed at this point. If you're 40 years old, you may remember my friend Flicka and Fury and uh, Rin Tin Tin, and you don't have to be so old to remember Lassie or Benji or Black Beauty. I was thinking about all these animals yesterday because they're all friends. They were deep friends of somebody. And you, I had a friend. My first friend was Dusty, and my second friend who lasted nine years was Blackie. And my friends never saved my life, but if you, if you watch TV... Your animal friends can save your life. They can save your life a hundred times. <laughs> and if that happens, you begin to love your friends very deeply. Even an animal. And I wept for a whole day and on and off for a week when Blackie was put to sleep. 
and when Dusty was run over. And uh, it, can, it just happens that way. You know, your heart gets knit together. But I was never tempted, and you've never been tempted, to kneel down and worship that pit and pay homage and reverence to it. And it's the same with a human friend. You might be so close, so deeply united to someone, perhaps a spouse or a friend, a roommate, a, a, a child, and you wonder how you could live without that person, but you've never been tempted to get down on your knees and pay homage and reverence and sing hymns to that person. Why? The reason is because one essential element of worship is greatness, immensity, magnitude, grandeur. And so when carelessness in worship is at stake, as it is here, God says, I have loved you and I have hated Esau. If I am a father, where is my honor? In other words, he accents the greatness of his love and his fatherhood. Not so much his gentleness and his tenderness and his affection at this point. That's the first way that God brings us to see Why the failure to feel his greatness is the origin of careless worship. The second way he does this is in verses 11 and 14. The logic of these verses is very crucial. Let's read verses 10 or the second part of it and verse 11 and and notice the connection. Latter part of verse 10. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. And I will not accept an offering from your hand for now your NIV doesn't have that word for some reason, but all the other versions do. And it's in the Hebrew for from the rising of the sun to its setting. My name will be great among the nations. Now, do you see the connection? Do you see the incongruity that's being pointed out between a shabby offering and the greatness, the worldwide greatness of God? I will not accept your offering for I am great among the nations. And then exactly the same logic in verse 13 and 14. Cursed be the cheat who is male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished for I am a great king. You see the logic? The reason they are careless in worship is because they don't feel this greatness. They don't see it. God is not great to the priests of Israel anymore. How does that cause carelessness in worship? Well, Malachi makes very plain, I think, how it causes carelessness in worship. It causes carelessness in worship by making us bored with God and excited about the world. If you've never seen the sun, you will be excited by a lamppost. If you've never known thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness of the majesty of God, you will fall in love with your shadow and spend your whole life pursuing ephemeral greatnesses and pleasures. Now, Malachi makes this very plain 
For example, first of all, in verse 13. What a weariness this is, you say, and you sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, you are bored stiff with worship. That's the effect of not seeing and feeling the greatness of God. Boredom with God. Boredom city on Sunday morning. And then it's time to offer sheep. What do you do? Well, you offer lame sheep, blind sheep, stolen sheep. Why? You can't sell them. And you love money. If you can't see the greatness of God, he is boring and the world is exciting. And so by all means, save your best sheep. They pay. And then with money, we can go on a vacation and buy another car or hi-fi or computer or clothes or better food or live in a better neighborhood. There's your God. And so in these two ways, Malachi makes very plain the origin of careless worship. The first way was by showing the uh, connection between the greatness of his love and fatherhood and the inconsistency there with worship that's careless. And the second way was in the uh, logic of verses 11 and 13. The origin of careless worship is a failure to feel the greatness of God. Second question. What's the essence of careless worship? The essence of careless worship is worthless religious activity. Or to be more precise, it's religious activity that illustrates in its nature, in its performance, how little value God has for us. I get this from verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you, says the Lord, who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire upon my altar in vain, in vain, in vain. There's a little Hebrew word behind that phrase, in vain, that carries immense freight. It's the word chinam. It's used a lot in the Old Testament. And I got out my concordance yesterday and looked them all up. And I found one that's a remarkable parallel to this text. It goes like this. You remember the story back in 2 Samuel where there's a plague actually sweeping through the city. You can actually watch it go from house to house. And David can stop it with a sacrifice. And the plague reaches Arauna's threshing floor. And David goes to Arauna and says, if I can offer an offering on your threshing floor, then I can avert this plague. And Arauna says, take it. It's yours. You can have the whole field and all the animals you need. And you remember what David said? Verse 24 of Second Samuel 24. No, but I will buy it of you for a price. 
I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord in my name. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God. Chinam. And all the English versions translate it like this. Which cost me nothing. That's one Hebrew word. Chinam. Which cost me nothing. And I think that's the meaning in verse 10 as well. I don't want any more offerings on my altar which cost you nothing. Broken-legged rams, mangy sheep, blind animals, stolen bullocks. Now, the point here is not that you buy God off in your offering, and therefore it has to be expensive. That's not the point. God doesn't need either a good sheep or a bad sheep. He is not hungry. The point is, the worship of God should reflect the value we put upon him in the way it is done. So the essence of careless worship is worship that illustrates how little we value God. Which leads now to the final question. What's the opposite of careless worship? This raises the whole issue of excellence in worship because one answer would be the opposite of carelessness in worship is excellence in worship. But I don't think it's helpful to talk in generalities about excellence because excellence is always a relative term to what your goal is. And therefore, a prior question to what is excellent in worship is what is worship. What is the nature, the essential nature of true worship? Then excellence becomes those thoughts, attitudes, words, forms, Actions, technique, performance, atmosphere, which let that happen. And anything that hinders the happening or does not advance the happening of what is true worship can only be called excellent in a very carnal way. Therefore, let me try to answer those two questions. What is the nature And what would this excellence look like? The nature of true worship has two parts. And I'm thinking now of corporate worship, what we're up to on Sunday morning together. First, true worship expresses the feeling of God's greatness and value. And secondly, it seeks to sustain in other people, in the congregation, that same spiritual sense of his immense worth. So it has two parts. It expresses something that's inside, this feeling of greatness in God, and it seeks in its expression to sustain it in other people. And and that applies, of course, to me and those of us who lead in music and so on, but it also applies to you. How you sit, how you sing, how you pray, how you move, your whole demeanor in worship, 
either helps or hinders the people around you. Let me say it another way. Genuine worship comes from a heart that treasures God above all human treasures. The praise of man, money, whatever. And it aims to inspire a God-centered passion in people. It wants at all costs to avoid diverting people from God-centeredness in worship. At any cost, we will not draw people away from God in worship. Now that is the essence of the nature of true worship. Coming from a heart that feels the greatness of God and serving and seeking to kindle and inspire and sustain that same spiritual God-centered passion in the people around us. Now, what's excellence? I would love, if we had time, to go into detail and ask about music. What would excellence in music be? What would excellence in architecture be? B. That's going to become increasingly relevant now that we have voted to move ahead with the new sanctuary. What would excellence in art be? In posture, in dress, in prayer, in preaching. And we could talk for hours about excellence in all these dimensions of our worship life. But let me rather close with a general statement like this. I think there are three dead-end streets that people try to find worship on through excellence. And they're not excellent in the long run, as I've defined it. And I think there's one road that holds out hope. So let me mention the dead-end streets and then close with this and move us to the table, not carelessly. The first dead-end street I would call Cool professionalism. It's a dead-end street in worship because it thinks of excellence mainly in terms of technique. And it fails or it neglects or it forgets that performances that don't come from a heart that feels the greatness of God and don't consciously minister the sustaining of that God-centered affection in the people are not worship at all no matter how technically proficient. Second dead-end street is the opposite, what I would call warm emotionalism. Warm emotionalism. This is a dead-end street because it focuses on feelings, circumvents, takes a detour around the understanding, and therefore employs manipulative means to stir up natural enthusiasms, which don't have to be spiritual at all. There are simple techniques you can use in speaking, lighting, atmosphere, music, to move people's natural emotions. That has nothing of God in it. And it is a dreadfully misleading dead-end street. Third, There's a dead-end street of what I would call laid-back spirituality. It's not quite a dead-end street. And it's not because there is spirituality here. There is a spiritual sense of the worth of God. 
But there's a lingering carelessness in laid-back spirituality that hinders intensity and God-centered focusness. As you walk down this street, there are constant distractions. They are caused by individualistic indifference or inattention to the spirit of the moment. It is missed again and again or abused, prostituted, you could say. The moment is missed. Or distractions happen through errors and through mistakes and through shortcomings in the execution of the various forms of worship. And we cannot focus concertedly on God. That's why it's a failure. The road I commend to you I would call conscientious spirituality. Conscientious spirituality. And I don't have in mind any particular form here. This form that we use here, this is not the only form in the world with which you can worship. Please don't make the mistake thinking that in the whole world of cultures and languages and forms, we think this is all that you can do. This is the one that fits a lot of us. And we don't exalt it to be the final word at all. What I have in mind when I talk about a road of conscientious spirituality is worship that comes from a feeling of the greatness of God, seeks humbly to express and inspire that same intensity of God-centeredness, and, and this is probably where it diverts from laid-back spirituality, and makes every effort to avoid distractions of errors, of artificiality, banality, inappropriateness, ostentation, or the list could go on. Anything that would hinder the communion with a God-centered knowledge of the Almighty, that should be drawn back and considered non-excellent in the achievement of worship. And so may the Lord teach us. We're only on the way at Bethlehem. Teach us how to worship at Bethlehem. And may he open our eyes to his greatness. And may he banish all carelessness from us. And may he forbid that in the pulpit and in the choir loft and on the instruments and in the pew, we should simply bring him the leftovers of our lives. Would you bow with me as we prepare our hearts now to meet the Lord at the table? And I would like you to sing with me a song that you know by heart, most of you, the last verse of a great hymn. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's sing it together.